As we come now before the very word of God, if you'd like to read along with me, and please do, uh, turn in your Bibles to Genesis in chapter 3. We've now been several months uh, in those first two chapters of Genesis. Now we cross into Genesis 3. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Our great God, uh, we know you say in your word, and it is true, that, that you are our hiding place and our shield, and we hope in your word. That is true of us as your people. Would you make it even truer today that we would find hope here? We need your spirit to do this, so would you open our eyes to see and our hearts to believe as we submit ourselves now to you? Guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. And this is Genesis in chapter 3. I want to take up uh, just the first uh, several verses here. So Genesis chapter 3 will begin in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of God. Now, at this point in Genesis, the narrative has taken a sharp, sudden left turn. You know, up till now, we've seen creation generally moving in this upward trajectory. So, so we've been able to witness now through these words that, that how God takes a world that's a briar and a bramble and transform it into a world of beauty and bounty. And he fills it all with, with stars and trees and beasts of the earth and the great sea creatures. And, and he plants on this earth in a small space a garden of pleasure and delight in Eden. And there in the garden he puts the man and the woman whom he has made both in his image so that they can share the good task to work and keep his world. And and they're to enjoy it and to eat freely of this huge orchard in the garden, except for one tree that he sets off limits. And, And all is right in the world on this trajectory of God's goodness until 
everything starts to come crashing down by way of one talking snake. This serpent in the text at least seems to come just out of the blue, out of the black maybe if we're a little grimmer about it. This is the first we hear of this snake in the text and he just kind of drops in. You can feel, if we were reading even up to before here and through here, we can feel that there's some sort of backstory behind this that we're just not told. So, so what is it that's going on? As we take a look at this serpent, we want to ask two questions during our time. One, what is it And two, what does it do? What is the serpent, and what does the serpent do? I want to say up front that there are some, plenty, of questions about the serpent, even parts of the questions we have today, that we will just be unable to fully answer. You know, Scripture is God's Word, and and God draws some lines in the Word that He's given us that we just can't cross. We're not able to delve any deeper than he's given us. So, so we wade into these waters with a measure of caution, holding on to the anchor of things that we know to be true so that we're not swept away by these currents of speculation and become foolish, faithless people. That's not what we want. That said, though, it is okay to ask good, hard, challenging questions of the Bible. To do so actually shows that we, that we take the scripture seriously, that we're actually engaging with it, pondering it, thinking about it. It's good as long as the intent of our questions is, are, are not to dispute the word, but to discern it, to listen well to it. We know that we, and me too, all of us, are just mere humans who come before the word of God not with our own authority, but acknowledging his authority in all of this. We are are dependent and reliant upon him to give what he wills. So sometimes we just have to content ourselves to not know it all. To have faith in God is always better than to have answers from God. Now that said, faith faith in God does not mean we're lazy, about this or just kind of nod along and pretend like we know what's happening. We want to be thoughtful, right? To dig in with the Spirit's guiding to to sort of figure out what's going on here. So on one hand, we need to take each text in Scripture on its own. It is trying to tell us a particular thing, and we want to listen to what that text says and not stretch it too far beyond its means. But on the other hand, same body, two different hands, we also know that the Bible is a unity It fits together with itself from beginning to end. It speaks together with one voice as a whole. So so there was a guy who's now a dead, Francis Schaeffer, 20th century theologian, said uh, this, and I think he's right. He said, one of the lies of Satan is to uh, attempt to convince us to break the Bible into pieces and therefore destroy its unity. We shouldn't do that, he says, because the Bible is an increasing uh, revelation. 
That's not to say that scripture goes back and corrects itself. It's not contradicting itself. But as time goes on, the scripture is revealing more of itself. God is revealing more of himself. So Adam and Eve at this point in the garden know of really one command, right? Don't eat of that fruit of that tree. They don't know anything about the Ten Commandments, at least not directly. Then later, Moses, who knows of the Ten Commandments, has to carry them down on tablets down the mountain. He knows of the Ten Commandments, but he knows nothing about the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with David to establish his kingdom forever. But then when we get to David, he knows, of course, about the First Commandment, the Ten Commandments, the Davidic covenant, but he knows nothing yet about the New Covenant, where, where the Lord says he's going to write his law on our hearts, and we will all know the Lord. And none of these people know Jesus. Not yet, at least not in the way that we can look back at history and scripture and see him, see how Jesus was born, how he lived, how he died, how he rose again, the the full extent of the way that Jesus would seek and save the lost from sin. So scripture is expanding, unfolding, shining light back upon itself to increase our knowledge of God. So here we are in the very first pages, and we've got a serpent. It says something about the serpent here, but we will also need the light of the whole counsel of God's word to explore what's going on here. Now, question one. What is it? We've got a serpent here. You may have some sense of what's going on. What is it? One of the clearest places we see what's going on here is on the complete opposite end of the Bible. In the book of Revelation, which we know is difficult often to read sometimes, but in Revelation chapter 12, we hear this. Uh, listen, verse, starting in verse 7. Now, war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. There's a lot going on here, but we can see at least that that there's a personal, powerful creature here who goes by many names, even more than we hear here, which we'll talk about later. But the ones mentioned here in the text are the great red dragon, the devil, and Satan. And, And the name that's most pertinent to us from this text is it calls him that ancient serpent. This is a clear, specific reference to where we are in Genesis 3. So the one that we see in the Garden of Eden is Satan himself. Eve, in the delight of the garden, is having a chat with the great red dragon. This one who who is in some way a chief among the angels, one who was created good by God, but led this grim rebellion against God and swept with him this whole army of angels that are turned to demons. 
Now, how exactly this ancient serpent got here, we're just not told. You know, God's creation of the spiritual beings, so angels and Satan and that, that whole, you know, amalgam of things, those are not mentioned at all in Genesis in the early chapters. Some think that they were created prior to day one in Genesis chapter one. That's what Job maybe is suggesting in, in Job 38, that, that when God laid the foundations of the earth, the morning stars sang and the sons of God sang for joy. So maybe it was before even the day one of creation. Maybe others say it was on day four when God created the sun, the moon, the stars, the, the heavenly lights. We know that angels aren't stars. When you look at the night sky, you're not seeing pin, you know, pinpoints of angels. But, but the Bible often compares angels to stars. Even the name Lucifer, which is maybe applied to Satan, maybe not. It's a questionable title, but shows up in Isaiah 14. Lucifer means morning star. So maybe it was on day four. Most agree the angels at least by day seven. When the Lord rests on his Sabbath, we hear that, that the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. So at least by that point, we've got angels somehow in the picture. We know that some of this is a little bit of guesswork, and, and I don't want us to get lost in the guesses. Here's what we can be sure of. God created Satan before this. God created Satan before this appeared. And Satan is here now in a face-to-face -face interaction with man. That's what we're looking at. There are plenty more questions that we cannot know with complete certainty, like... How long have Adam and Eve been in the garden up to this point? They're both there. They've both been created. But, but what's the time span between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3? Maybe it was a couple hours. Maybe it was a few days. Perhaps it was even years or decades that they've been enjoying the garden. I think that's likely. Because in chapter 5, we find out that Adam's third son, Seth, was born after Adam had lived 130 years. So there's a long time span that has passed in here somewhere. Maybe that was after they got cast out of the garden. But it's, it's possible that they've been in the garden for a very long time by this point. But the, we just don't know. It's a question that we have to leave hang in the air. The biggest question, at least to me, that I've wrestled with for a very long time is, is this one. Why isn't Eve surprised to hear this talking serpent? You ever wondered this? Serpent begins to talk to her. Why isn't she surprised at that? You know, talking animals are common in fairy tales, in Harry Potter, and Narnia, and all those places, but not in the Bible. It's not a common thing at all. I, mean, I suppose it's possible that this could happen, but it doesn't really seem normal, doesn't it? You know, like, if a snake starts talking to you, you'd at least make a double take or wonder what you ate earlier that day that's making you imagine all of this stuff. It's not as if the serpent here is putting some sort of spell upon Eve. There's no magic or incantation here. Nor is the serpent like Ka in the Jungle Book, you know, that's got those hypnotic eyes, and it looks right into the eyes of Mowgli and says, trust in me. You know, that's, that's, it's fine. That's, I like the Jungle Book. That's not what's happening here. This is a very intelligent, rational, back-and-forth conversation 
that's happening between the serpent and Eve. And the response that Eve gives, even in just replying at all, suggests that in some way this is normal for her. Why? You know, some people uh, guess this is what scholars do. They do their best uh, shot at this. Some people guess that maybe animals, at least some of them, did talk before the fall. Maybe they talked then. Maybe they'll talk in the new heavens and the uh, new earth. I, you know, I think that's uh, possible. I suppose we can't rule that out, but there's no indication that that's the text. The scripture doesn't lean in that direction. Uh, other people say maybe Eve is still really just new. You know, maybe it's only been, you know, a few minutes or hours since God made her, and so she's still pretty naive and unaware about how the world works. But I think that's unlikely, too. You know, even kids can usually tell that snakes don't talk. And Eve's no dummy. We know at least Adam is with her at this moment. And earlier, he had had all the animals come by him as he named them all. And so now when he hears a talking serpent, he's going to know that that's somehow different. This might uh, maybe, oh, some other people, one last one that I'll mention, some people note that this isn't just any snake, right? It's not just the random snake that was made by God. This is the snake, that ancient serpent. And so perhaps some people say this is, this is now the Satan, Satan disguised in the form of a snake, and we know, of course, Satan can disguise himself. Scripture talks about him as, as masquerading as an angel of light in places. And that might explain how the snake is able to talk. But it doesn't explain why Eve isn't surprised when it does. You know, It doesn't even seem like a logical disguise for Satan to trick her anyway. I mean, if his goal is to trick Eve, wouldn't you think he'd pick a cuter or cuddlier animal to do so? I mean, maybe like a dog or a panda bear. You know, can you imagine a panda in the garden? Or if I, you know, a capybara, just a capybara could ask me to do anything and I'd be okay with it. You know, again, we really don't know here. We have to trust God that his word is true. That said, I will give a hesitant suggestion that Satan perhaps does not look like a snake at all. He's called a serpent. doesn't necessarily mean he looked like one, at least not in the pictures that we learned from Sunday school and flannel graphs. Now, the, my guess at this is a bit technical. I, I can't go into all the details about this. You can come ask me about it later if you want. But in Numbers chapter 21, there's this word snake. The people encounter snakes in the wilderness. And that, in that text, is a synonym for the Hebrew word seraphim, meaning the burning ones. In the scripture, seraphim are also a type of angel. We see them in Isaiah uh, chapter 6. We sing about them in the holy, holy, holy song. They fly with six wings and, and, and call out, holy, holy, holy. So Satan may have once been one of the seraphim before God. It's possible that Satan here, this ancient serpent, is not really disguised at all, but has come exactly as he is in his majestic, fiery form as a seraphim. I don't know, but that would have made it much more normal to talk to a creature like this instead of just a regular old animal like a snake. 
In fact, they might have even talked many times prior to this, which would explain Eve's lack of surprise when he comes for a chat. The text doesn't tell us this is their first or only conversation. It just says that this is the most critical one, the one that the reader now needs to hear. This is the conversation that's going to change everything. All that said, let me be as clear as I can. The actual physical appearance of the serpent and what he looked like is is a bit of a mystery. I can't say with complete certainty. But what the serpent does here, that is clear. And it's the most important part that we need to take a look at. So let's look then at question two. What does it do? Or I suppose we could say he What does he do? In the book of Revelation, we see the same ancient serpent in a different context. You know, full-on war, raging attack, you know, and and he loses this big battle and, and is physically, if we can call it physically, physically thrown down to the earth. And the whole scene in Revelation there is, is noisy and chaotic and violent. It's big and crashing. But here, this scene could not feel more different from that. This whole event feels like it could have occurred over tea and toast. Just a chat, quietly under the shade of the tree of of the knowledge of good and evil. And even though it's quiet here, there is still a war, a different kind of war, but a war. And the weapon that's used is the serpent's tongue. The serpent's tongue. The text barely describes the serpent at all, except to say that he's crafty. At least in my translation, it calls him crafty. And boy, that word sounds really sneaky, doesn't it? Crafty's not a thing you want to be. But in the scripture, craftiness is not always a bad thing. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, when this same word is used, it's it's always a good thing. They translate it there, prudent, but it's the same word, that a prudent or crafty person acts with knowledge. A prudent person discerns his way. A prudent person gives thought to his steps. So the sense of this word, we could describe it as, as being calculated. Whether it's for good ends or for bad, things are calculated on purpose. Satan, of course, here, does not have a good end in mind. He's aiming to turn Adam and Eve against God, which is a great evil, but he has absolutely given plenty of thought to his steps about how to do it. He is crafty. This is not just a casual conversation. This is a calculated conversation. Nothing random or off-the-cuff about it. It is planned, meaning the serpent has waited for just the right moment, and he's chosen just the right approach so that he's going to reel in Eve now with a total of just 26 words. That's all he says. So what has he really done here? You can see how Eve describes what the serpent did later in the text in verse 13. Read with me. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, 
the serpent deceived me, and I ate. There's the answer to our question, what does he do? He speaks, of course, but it's more specific than that. He deceives. Satan lies. You notice when Satan interacts with Eve, he does not threaten her. He does not coerce her. He does not demand anything from her. We can't blame all this on him. You know the the phrase, the devil made me do it, is never true. The devil never makes or can make anyone do anything. He doesn't even tell them, if we look carefully, he doesn't tell them to disobey God and bite the fruit at all. He takes a much craftier approach, much more prudent approach to lie. It's not the sort of blatant, untrue lie that's, you know, baldly false. It's what we might call a white lie, a half-truth. The subtle little twist on the truth that, that just throws a little bit of shade at God to question his motives, to just puff this little cloud of smoke over the situation to give doubt to God's goodness. And it works. The lie works, and Eve is deceived. None of that is to excuse Eve or Adam from their own sin. Their actions are their responsibility, but the lie was enough to tempt Eve so that she is lured in by her own desires, which give birth to sin and to death. Now listen to me. We should never underestimate the power of Satan's lies. His words here are sharp and deadly. They are a kind of murder even, a calculated, premeditated murder. That's how Jesus speaks of this. We hear him mention it in John chapter, let me find it, John chapter 8. These are the words of Jesus. I'll cut it in the middle of verse uh, 44. He's speaking of the devil here. He says, he, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. We hear here from Jesus that this ancient serpent speaks not on a whim, not because he's in a bad mood, not even out of a grudge that he's got with God. He speaks out of his own character. He speaks out of who he is. Satan lies because he is a liar. And not just he is a liar, he's also the father of lies. That means he's giving birth to generation of children of lies. This is not then an isolated incident in the garden. Satan continues to wield his words like a weapon, and many throughout the centuries are slain by his lies. That's why Paul says to the people at Corinth, he says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, you also will be led astray from your devotion to Christ. And he tells the Romans, you watch out 
so that smooth talk and flattery won't deceive your hearts. These are things not said to people outside, but to the church that we're to take seriously, that we watch for his lies and not be so prideful as to assume or ignore that, that we're immune, that we're too smart to be suckered in by him. The scripture calls you to stand, to stand against the schemes of the devil and to put on regularly the whole armor of God, including, notably, the belt of truth. In order to do that, in order to be able to stand, you need to hold on to, then to the, to the sword of scripture, the support of the church, and most of all, the strength of the Holy Spirit that is within you. Do not forsake those things, or you will leave yourself vulnerable to the serpent's sting and deadly lies. What does that look like on a regular basis? It is hard. Practically, I found a lot of help and wisdom from, uh, from Martin Luther. We know uh, Martin Luther is a, is a Christian who lived way back in the 16th century. He was a flawed guy, problematic theology and social views in some places, but, but in a lot of ways, a pillar that God raised up to reform his church so that we would return to Jesus and the truth of the Bible. But, but Luther also very famously struggled with a lot of personal issues. He struggled with faith. You know, battled with fear and doubt his own salvation before God. And he struggled in life with matters of, of depression. He had many demons, so to speak. And part of the way, then, that Luther put on the armor of God to battle against Satan was woven into one of the hymns that he wrote. He wrote, we're going to sing it here in a little bit. He wrote, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. You know that one? It's got kind of a marchy tune. A mighty for Well, you don't want to hear me sing it. But there's a line in there toward the end of the third verse, which, here's the words. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. One little word shall fell the prince of darkness. And, and Luther wrote in a letter what he meant by that one little word. And it's not the word I would have expected. It's the word liar. That he would say, devil, you lie. Serpent, you're a liar. And that's how he fought him off. You have to wonder what might have been here in Genesis. I know this is hypothetical, but what might have been if when Satan said to Eve, if you eat the fruit, you will not surely die, if she just looked at him in the eye and said, liar, one little word, you lie, and just walked away. One of the strongest weapons that God has given his people is to name lies and then to replace them with the truth of the gospel. So speak up and do that. 
You know, if, if you're a Christian, if you are in Jesus, Satan may tell you all sorts of things. May tell you that the guilt of your sin condemns you. That you are too bad to be saved. You say, liar. No, no, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or, or if Satan says, your sin is no big deal, it's not going to hurt you. You say, liar. If we live by the Spirit, we're to put to death the evil deeds of the body by his power. If he says, no, no, the fight's not going to be worth it, you say, liar. We know that the suffering of these times are not even comparable to the glory that will be revealed in us. And if he says, listen, you're alone, you're by yourself in this, you say, liar. The Spirit helps me in my weakness, and I know that nothing, nothing, nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus my Lord. That is true. You name that lie and then speak the truth of God's word. Satan is a liar and a murderer, but Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Let me make one final note before I close. We're almost done. One final note. Satan and Jesus are not two sides of the same coin. That is, they're not the yin and the yang, the good and the bad, who are opposite but equal. The Lord God is uncreated. He is forever, from everlasting, without beginning and without end. And Jesus is one with the Father, from everlasting, without beginning, and the maker of all things. Jesus is the creator of all. So while Satan himself made himself evil by his rebellion, Jesus is the one who made Satan to begin with. Christ's power over Satan, that gap between their power, is far greater than the gap between you and a worm. He is infinitely powerful. And when Jesus is born to earth and said that the reason that he has come is to destroy the works of the devil, we know that he will prevail in that and that the liar will fall. Pray with me. Mm. Lord, help us to anchor this truth down deep in us. That you are the reigning king who has all authority and have the all enemies put under your feet. You are above every rule and every authority and every power and every dominion. Help us to find power and rest in that. By your spirit, would you equip us to stand and, and push back against Satan's lies, to speak your truth against it so that we would not be deceived, but find our hope in you. Lord, do this in us. And we pray by the great name of Jesus. Amen.